FX Medicine is your gateway to resources, research and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practising complementary and integrative medicine. Stay current by visiting fxmedicine.com.au to register for our email newsletter and exclusive members-only content. And welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional and complementary medicine. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, where we live and work, and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I'm Emma Sutherland, and joining us on the line today is Dr. Jade Tetter, naturopath, author, and podcast host. Jade's primary area of specialty is integrative endocrinology, and more specifically, hormones and metabolism. Jade's latest book is called Next Level Metabolism, and in it, he discusses how to heal metabolic damage, balance hormones, and successfully lose fat. Now today, we are going to deep dive into the world of metabolism, looking at the hormones and the roles they play, as well as so much more. Welcome to FX Medicine, Jade. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Emma. I'm excited for the conversation. It's going to be fun. Yeah, totally agree. I can't wait either. Now, just to set the scene, in June of last year, the World Health Organization stated that worldwide obesity had nearly tripled since 1975. According to Australian Bureau of Statistics data from 2018, 67% of adult Australians are overweight or obese. The link between obesity and chronic diseases like insulin resistance, diabetes, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and cardiovascular disease is well known. Now, as clinicians, I'm sure we can all relate to the following scenario. A patient comes in saying, I need to lose weight. You then look at their food diary and they're not eating that badly. And it's mainly pretty healthy food and they go to the gym regularly. But what is happening hormonally with these patients? There are well-known drivers for metabolism, including genetics, gut microbiota, sleep, ageing and excess energy consumption. But today, I want to deep dive into the role of hormones and weight. We know hormones regulate appetite and satiety, but what is happening beyond calories in and calories out? So let's kick off with some basics. Jade, what actually is metabolism and what influences it? Yeah, well, the best way to think about metabolism in my mind is as a sensing and responding apparatus. And I want to break that down a little bit because if we look at the way it is currently seen, most people, and let's just go through the evolution of this really quickly. When we think about the way uh, metabolism has been uh, described historically, uh, it is usually described in my mind as a metaphorical calculator, right? It's Mm. basically this idea of like, We're going to manage our energy resources, and it's calories in, calories out. It's an addition or subtraction problem from the old model, the Mm. calorie model. Now, the truth of the matter is the metabolism does have 
some ability to track and sort of count in a rough crude calorie counting way or calculator way mm. what is going on with its fat stores. For example, leptin is a hormone that's released from fat cells, as we all know, that speak to the brain and say, hey, brain, we've got about this much fat on our body. Mm. The problem is, is that that model, that calculator model, falls apart pretty quickly once you begin to cut calories and or exercise more. Mm. The metabolism begins to budget itself. And so the calculator model has not really served us. And so a lot of us started to upgrade that model. And we started to talk about the metabolism as more like a chemistry set, where we went to this hormonal model where it's like insulin and leptin and cortisol and estrogen and progesterone and testosterone. And if we get the hormonal balance correct, we should be able to lose weight. And the fact of the matter is that also has not really panned out too well for us. Now, of course, uh, calories matter and the calculator model is somewhat correct. Mm. And of course, hormones matter. And the hormonal model is somewhat correct, but they're both not complete and somewhat incorrect. And so when we think about this sensing and responding apparatus Mm. that is the metabolism, it looks out into the environment. It says, what is out there in terms of light and temperature and season? Mm. What is out there in terms of food availability? What is out there in terms of danger? And then it also takes signals from inside the body and gathers up those things. What does the liver need? What's my nutrient status? What's going on with the signals that the microbiota is sending? What's going on with inflammatory signals, infection, Mm. things like this? And it merges those two things to plot a course back to balance. So Mm. me, we should never really give a simplistic metaphor for metabolism because it's too complex. But if we're forced into it, this looks a little bit more like a stress barometer, a pressure barometer or a stress barometer and a thermostat. Mm -hmm. This is more what we should be thinking about with the metabolism. It looks at how much stress is in the environment. Yeah. It looks at how much stress the cells inside the body are under, and then it adjusts and adapts and reacts like a thermostat. Mm. And so it does have some calculator-like properties. It does have some chemistry set-like properties, but it probably most resembles a thermostat and a stress barometer. And so if we understand that, we can start to understand that really any stress, whether too little or too much food, Mm. too little or too much movement, infection, injury, inflammation, social pressure, even if we think, even if we're not under pressure, but we we have a perception that we are, this is all registered as stress and then the metabolism has to respond. And this is how we should be looking at the metabolism. It is not about trying to speed it up. It is about trying to make it more resilient. It's not about having a fast metabolism. It's about having a more flexible, resilient, and adaptive metabolism. And I think this is the most succinct way right now with the limited information that we have about metabolism. This is the best way to look at it. And when we look at it this way, it does begin to change our way of dealing with it because it does start to take into account Mm. when we cut calories, why the metabolic rate slows down, why we end up getting excess hunger and cravings. The Mm. old models don't really account for that. So 
That is how I uh, see metabolism and how I think we want to be viewing it moving forward. Yeah, I really love that analogy. And and I agree that stress barometer, which adapts according to internal and external cues in order to uh, maintain balance. That's a great way for us to reframe metabolism and be a little bit more holistic around metabolism. But you mentioned metabolic flexibility, and this concept fascinates me. I mean, how do we achieve it? Well, one of the things that you don't do with a system that you want to be flexible is force it into rigid patterns, I think. So in other words, doing the same thing day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out may not be the best approach. Mm. Because when you think about a flexible, reactive and adaptive system, it will have reacted to anything you do on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And so one rule here is that if you cut calories sharply and you start exercising a lot, and that mm-hmm. is your only approach, and it is the continuous approach, and it's the only thing you ever do, and you mm-hmm. keep trying to force your will on metabolism, it's going to essentially adapt and react. And we can talk about the ways that it adapts and reacts, mm. but it's going to adapt. And, it's, and if you keep doing the same thing, it's going to be laughing at you saying, look, I adapted weeks and months ago. You keep trying to do the same thing. I'm not going to respond. And so I do think we need to look at this as taking an approach that is not a continuous, static, predictable, linear approach, that this might be a better way uh, to look at this. And by the way, mm-hmm. and if you look at this from the standpoint of stress, one hint here is the following. If you study stress, you know that, that the body responds to stress in different ways. Mm. It does not like prolonged extreme stress. Mm. If you're going to have an extreme stress, it has to be very short. And the body will react to extreme stress that is short. It tends to adapt to that stuff. It tends to have an adaptation response from extreme short periods of stress. And it also responds fairly well to very gentle, long stresses. And so if we are going to diet, I think the best approach might be, and of course, this needs to be worked out in science, but we do have some hints that this is the case and we can talk about it. Mm. The best approach might be either very short, extreme calorie reductions that then return back to maintenance and or a very gentle, a prolonged calorie reduction. And that we might want to be rethinking this very long duration, extreme calorie reduction. And, we, and by the way, let's give numbers to this. Most yeah, of the time, you look at the research, we're talking 30% to 50% reductions in caloric intake over the long run. Okay. Those are extreme levels, right? So 20 to 30% maybe, maybe if we can do 10%, 15%. But I, I right now, I operate, if we can do you know, 20% or less reduction in calories, maybe that's not going to be as intense as the 30% many studies use. And if we are going to go above that 30%, then maybe we need to have those diets last for a shorter period of time. And so if we want to work with a flexible adaptive system, we have to understand the way that the metabolism reacts to stress. Mm. Extreme, continuous, chronic diets probably aren't going to be the approach (laughs) that we need to use. And we have the data to show us this, by the way, uh, people who try these approaches, only about 5% of 
lose the weight, which in research, by the way, just so we can all know what we're talking about, yeah. success is defined as 10% loss in body weight sustained over a year. Okay. So only 5% of people are able to do that, which means 95% of people either can't lose the weight and or can't sustain that 10% weight loss over the course of the year. That yeah. number drops to 97% at year two right. and drops to basically 99% at year so obviously the model we are using is not working. Yeah, agreed. And, you know, as clinicians, we all see this in our clinical practices that patients struggle because of this rebound situation. And for us as clinicians to understand metabolism better so that we can have more effective conversations with our patients is absolutely critical. I mean, I'm curious, Jade, what are the best ways to actually assess metabolism? I mean, I love using mm. a two-hour glucose tolerance test to assess insulin and glucose sensitivity, but what markers do you actually use to both assess and then monitor your patients? Well, this is a really, really good question. And I think that to me, the best way is the same way we learn and assess about other diseases when we begin to diagnose. And that comes from signs and symptoms. Yeah. So the metabolism is giving biofeedback all of the time. It is releasing signs and symptoms. Mm. Most of these things are either directly impacted by or directly caused by hormonal situations in the body. So things like sleep. Is the sleep fragmented and difficult? If it is, this tells us that the metabolism is probably less flexible and more rigid. Mm, okay. Is uh, hunger insatiable and constant? Mm. If it is, this tells us the metabolism is probably more rigid. Are craving unrelenting and continuous? Mm. What about energy levels? Is it unpredictable, low, and unstable? Mm. And this, to me, is a little funny term I've become famous for. I, I, I call it SHMEC. S-H-M-E-C. It's an acronym pronounced mm -hmm. SHMEC. It stands for sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings. Okay. So to me, the first sign and the first way to assess metabolic flexibility yes. or metabolic rigidity is, is your SHMEC, sleep, hunger, mood, energy, craving, in check, or is it out of check? Now, All by right. the way, sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and craving, SHMEC, is really a catch-all phrase for all biofeedback. So okay. it also includes things like exercise performance and exercise recovery, menses, libido, mm. erectile function, mm. digestive function, joint pain, headaches, signs and symptoms, uh, immune reactivity, how likely you are to get a cold and a flu every you know season, those mm -hmm. kinds of things. So to me, the first way to assess metabolism and its ability to be flexible or not is that when you go on a diet, yeah. is Schmeck in check or does it quickly go out of check? Okay. So that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. The second thing would be uh, how likely and how effective is this approach changing body composition? Mm. Not just weight, but body composition. Is the person losing fat? Yeah, critical. Best way to assess that, in my opinion, uh, easiest way to assess that is Look at inches and weight rather than just weight. Yeah. If the weight is going down slowly or not changing at all, but you're losing inches, this is a great indication you are losing fat. Mm. And then finally, we can get a little faster with uh, continuous glucose monitors, things like hemoglobin A1C, okay. fasting insulin, thyroid panels, 
heart rate variability, these kinds of things, right? So we tend to, I think as clinicians, we tend to jump to labs and vitals first. But the truth of the matter is those things aren't really necessarily going to be showing up until the dysfunction becomes disease, Mm. right? So what we want to do is catch this early. And if we're talking about just weight loss, most of these people aren't going to have a dysfunction necessarily or disease. They're going to just be having signs and symptoms of being unwell. And most of us who are functional medicine practitioners know very well that long before you start seeing blood laboratory derangement and that there's going to be dysfunction showing up in the way the person looks and feels Mm. and functions in their everyday lives. And this is why I think Schmeck and body composition is probably the best place to go, um, but all three matter. So we should be using all three, the way the person uh, looks, functions, and feels, Mm -hmm. as well as vitals and blood labs, if that makes sense. Yeah, and those signs and symptoms are primarily what drive patients in to see us. You know, they'll have disturbed sleep. You know, they'll have unpredictable energy, insatiable hunger and cravings. I mean, these are the things that people deal with daily that actually make them pick up the phone and come in to see us. So, and I, I love, Jade, that you said look at inches as well as weight because people do tend to get fixated with a number, which is inappropriate. And I think there is something to be said for the concept of body recomposition where we aim to replace fat with muscle. And and looking at those labs where you can, the HbA1c, the fasting insulin, the thyroid panel, and I do love continuous glucose monitoring myself, both personally and with my patients to help assess their response in real time time to food. Uh, Some great points there, Jade. I wanted to just have a quick chat around leptin. You know, we know it's released by fat cells in Mm. white adipose tissue and it signals to your brain that you're full and you have enough fat stored. And leptin helps regular long-term weight control. Now, leptin resistance is something Mm. that is not discussed enough, in my opinion. I see it a lot in clinic. Can you explain what leptin resistance is? And I'm actually really curious because I was reading a 2021 review showing that giving leptin as an intervention doesn't work for weight loss as the leptin receptor sensitivity has been so blunted. So if we have a patient that comes in and we do test their leptin and it's elevated, what do we do for these patients? Yeah, well, so first of all, I mean, just to make sure, I'm sure everyone knows, but I'll just do a brief review for people who may have forgotten about leptin. But leptin is released from fat cells. It essentially goes to the brain. Mm. Um, and it tells the brain, hey, look, here's how much fat you have on the body. Here's how many calories you have stored away. Yeah. And the brain in response, when the brain is functioning normally, should say, oh, okay, we've got plenty of fat on the body. Mm-hmm. So let's stop being so hungry. So typically when leptin goes up, the brain says shut down hunger. It also has some degree, it looks like, effect on cravings. Mm. more highly palatable food. So cravings also should decrease. The little other known things that leptin does is leptin will go to the adrenal glands and to the thyroid glands and say, hey, you know what? Maybe we need to bump up metabolic rate a little Mm. bit. And um, it probably has some effects on mitochondrial function, perhaps. There's some indication it might be having some impact when it binds to other cells on speeding um, fat burning. But it mainly... Uh, works, so far as we know, through adrenal function and thyroid fun- function to upregulate 
basal metabolic rate, mm. thyroid mainly binds and then begins to burn fat. So those are all well-known sort of aspects of um, burning fat. And okay. one thing I do want to say here just briefly, because I even think clinicians get confused on this, yeah. is y'all rem- let's all remember the difference between lipolysis, the release of fat, and the burning of fat. They're mm. not the same thing, <laughs> right? When fat is burned, first thing that has to happen is it gets released from a fat cell. It then has to travel to the cell that's going to burn it, the muscle cell. Yeah. It then needs to be taken in to that muscle cell. And then it's essentially uh, burned through beta oxidation. Yeah. Now, a lot of people think that if fat is released, they, that that automatically means fat is going to be burned. Mm. But in a very rigid, non-flexible metabolism like metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance or leptin resistance, oftentimes you, re- you have no problem releasing the fat or you'll release the fat but then it just gets restored because it can't be burned. Mm, Now, leptin's job is to essentially say, brain, stop eating so much, and body, start burning fat. Okay. Now, what happens when leptin is around for very high amounts for a long period of time, it's the same thing that happens with insulin, which, by the way, we're starting to see this happens with Lots of different hormones, including hormones like estrogen and other hormones. Mm. Hormone resistance begins to occur. The body regulates those hormonal signals by down-regulating leptin receptors. Mm. So you become leptin resistant. And when that happens at the level of the brain, the brain never gets the signal that it has a lot of fat stores. And therefore, rather than shutting hunger down, it doesn't change hunger or maybe even increases it. Mm-hmm. And so leptin resistance causes increased hunger. Leptin resistance causes less thyroid function. Leptin resistance causes less adrenal output. And by the way, leptin also speaks to the gonads, testicles right. and ovaries, and has effects on reproduction um, as well. So leptin resistance has far-ranging comp, uh, you know, issues that yeah. come up for it. Now, you asked the question, how do we begin to reverse leptin? And this is leptin resistance. This mm. is the catch-22. Because obviously, if you become leptin resistant from eating too much, yeah. so you might think that, okay, now I, all I need to do is the reverse. I'll just eat less and exercise more. Mm-hmm. And what will happen is leptin will begin to drop, but oftentimes that's going from one stressful state, very high leptin, to also now very low leptin. Mm. So dieting typically causes leptin levels to plummet, especially if it is a very uh, strict diet. Right. And so what we're perhaps doing wrong is we're perhaps going too extreme on the dieting. The best way to reverse leptin resistance mm-hmm. is to begin to go into a diet that is either very short and extreme or very long and gentle. Right. And also a diet that controls hunger. Because here's what's going to happen. You'll be excess, excess hunger will occur and cravings when you're left in resistance. But then when you go on an extreme diet and start burning a lot of fat rather than storing it, leptin levels fall, which is basically the same thing, right? Now mm. you're also not getting the leptin signal that you wanted and hunger goes up. Both Issues, leptin resistance, that is very, where leptin is very high, mm-hmm. and falling leptin, where leptin is very low, cause hunger and craving. Okay. And so whatever diet you use needs to control for hunger and craving. So not, not only do you need to take either an extreme short approach or a gentle long approach, mm. but you need to do something to control hunger. 
that hopefully doesn't have a whole lot of calories along (laughs) with it. And we do have some tools here. Fiber, protein, and water seem to be the best things to help with hunger. Now, this is somewhat individual depending on the patient in front of us. Mm-hmm. Most people respond very well to higher protein diets to shut down hunger. Mm-hmm. Some people are vegans and vegetarians, so we can't get the protein on board. So maybe we have to use more fiber. Okay. Um, but fat also can be, especially if we can get people into a, a ketogenic state where we're producing ketones, ketones also seem to be pretty hunger uh, suppressing. Yeah. And so the way to reverse leptin resistance in my mind is threefold. Mm-hmm. One, begin to control the stress of dieting. Don't do extreme dieting for long periods of time. Okay. And also control hunger by ramping up the percent of food in the form of protein, fiber, and water. And we also could potentially use a ketogenic diet for those that it is appropriate for. Mm-hmm to help with this. And this will begin to begin to address some of this uh, leptin resistance. Right now, to your uh, point, Emma, we can't just give people leptin <laughs> injections and expect for it to work with dieting because hormones work in a symphony. They behave differently depending on the other hormones they're socializing with. It is virtually impossible for us. Every time we try to isolate a hormone mm-hmm. and give it in isolation and expect for those effects to be isolated, it all falls apart because it depends on the other hormonal environment that is around, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes complete sense. And and I think that that shows the, the nuances of hormones and the interconnectedness of hormones. But I also think from a clinical perspective, if we understand fundamentally that the stress of dieting is a big factor and, and patients will have come in and they've already done those extreme diets and they've rebounded their weight and it's not working. And, and I really like that concept of, you know, trying either a long and gentle approach or we do a short extreme approach and that that concept of diet breaks and and pulsing as well can be really helpful but always controlling that hunger I mean we know fundamentally that our patients are not eating enough fiber or water having enough water or enough protein and getting their diets more aligned with that is going to be really helpful on that side of things I wanted to just shift gears a little Jade and discuss cortisol because I know you've done a lot of work in this space and as part of our flight flight response cortisol is naturally anti inflammatory, which sounds super helpful from a metabolic perspective, but with chronic stress, cortisol is consistently elevated, which causes the hypothalamus to become less responsive. Once again, this receptor side of things comes up and this can shift cortisol into having a net pro-inflammatory effect. Can you comment on this? I mean, cortisol can be both fat burning and fat storing. So talk to us a little bit more about this. Yeah, well, I call cortisol the, the Jekyll and Hyde hormone. And so Dr. Jekyll was this very gentle, introverted man who drank this potion that brought out his evil side, right? The Mr. Hyde. <laughs> and so hormone cortisol can be either the Dr. Jekyll, mm. very helpful and beneficial for us, or the Mr. Hyde. And it works on the Goldilocks principle. Too much cortisol or too little cortisol brings out Mr. Hyde. Mm-hmm. And so we need it, but we need it in just the right amount. 
Okay. And the way to think about what it does is if you think about the metabolism as a sensing and responding apparatus, you said it just right, Emma, that the hypothalamus and pituitary mm. is the command and control center. It is the satellite dish that is pointing into the body and also outside of the body. So imagine a satellite that is taking signals from outside. It's got two dishes, let's say. Yeah. One dish pointed inside the body and taking signals from inside the body and another dish looking outside the body. Yeah. Cortisol causes this sensing apparatus to become scrambled. It basically puts earmuffs on the satellite, so to speak. <laughs> And now the hypothalamus can no longer release its other hormones appropriately. So um, signaling to the pituitary can be disrupted and then downstream signaling to the adrenals, the gonads, and the thyroid hormone can be impacted from there. And this is why when we give adaptogens and we reduce stress, mm. we oftentimes see that we get multiple effects. So people go, well, is this a adrenal effect. We used to think back in the day, right, that adrenals fatigue. Yeah. Adrenals really don't fatigue and adaptogens don't really work on the adrenal system. They're working on the brain and the adrenals are being impacted by the downstream effect of hypothalamus pituitary adrenal, hypothalamus pituitary thyroid, and hypothalamus pituitary gonadal function. Mm. So that's the first thing cortisol does is scramble that system. Now, we all know how important that is. The other thing cortisol does that a lot of people don't realize is cortisol is incredibly antagonistic to insulin and the insulin receptors. Okay. And so the more cortisol there is, the more insulin resistant you become. Now, a lot of people don't understand this because we tend to think about insulin resistance as being something that happens when you eat too much. Yeah. But you can also stress too much because cortisol is antagonistic to insulin. The other okay. thing that's interesting about cortisol is cortisol is. Um, it's really, you get uh, cortisol release in pulses. One of the things that happens is when you eat, cortisol is released because it acts as an anti-inflammatory. You got all this foreign mm. substance that we have to <laughs> translate into friend food, and cortisol will be reactive during that time. Uh, cortisol also is reactive when we fast because cortisol, remember, glucocorticoid, it's in the name. Yeah. It manages glucose, and so it will raise uh, glucose levels and antagonize insulin. And so cortisol is doing a ton. And yes, it, it has pretty profound impact on our immune system, mainly reducing uh, our first line of defense of mm. secretory IgA, the immunoglobulin A. Yeah. And so, and it does a ton more. So what we want to do is we want to get cortisol reacting appropriately again. And so to get it reacting appropriately again, cortisol is... Uh, pretty diurnal in the way it functions. And so we can use our circadian clock mm -hmm. to help cortisol. And we also can use our food timing uh, mm. to help cortisol. Cortisol is meant to rise in the morning, basically as soon as you get up, and it's meant to fall at night. And so by waking up with the light, exposing ourselves to the light, getting outside and getting our eyes exposed, we help that cortisol response at night. Yeah. And by dimming our lights and preparing for nighttime and reducing our food intake uh, at night, we can begin to lower cortisol. So rule number one with getting cortisol to be in the Goldilocks zone mm -hmm. once again is to start paying attention to our circadian rhythm. Mm. Glucose intake mainly in the morning, less carbohydrates at night, 
more light exposure in the morning, less at night, yeah. these kinds of things. And of course, with many of our patients, we can begin to use adaptogens. But I think the biggest way to, to begin to address what's going on with cortisol is to help people get back into alignment with their circadian rhythm yeah. and also get the stress load off the system. So many people are like, I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to yeah. avoid this. I got to avoid that. Actually, our functional medicine uh, sort of environment sometimes adds to the stress when we start telling people, <laughs> you know, there's toxins on every corner and you shouldn't eat this and you shouldn't eat that and avoid this and avoid that. We need to get people to woo-saw a little bit, to relax, yeah. to own, to move into. And that's the other second way. Get them into really paying attention to rest and recovery when it comes to, to cortisol. And then the, the final thing is exercise is really interesting, right? Because mm. exercise, all exercise will increase cortisol. And we do not want not to have that. That is a beneficial effect. Intense exercise, long-duration exercise should raise cortisol, mm. and that's a really good thing. But then we want cortisol to fall pretty quickly after that. And so we have to realize that if we exercise too hard, too often, or too long, mm -hmm. too often, we're possibly disrupting this cortisol rhythm as well. And so mm. we want to balance our intense and prolonged activity with relaxing activity, things like creative pursuits, things like meditation and massage, things yeah. like sex and orgasm, things yeah. like time with pets, you know, relaxing music, time in nature, and all the things that can lower cortisol. Perhaps the best thing to balance cortisol is walking. Yeah. Walking, not power walking, because that might raise cortisol, but nice, relaxing nature walking has the effect to lower cortisol. The Japanese researchers have shown that it is actually more pronounced when it's done sort of slower and in a more meditative way mm. and in nature settings. And, and walking also, not only does it lower cortisol, but it also sensitizes the body to insulin. It's one of the few types mm. of activity that does both. Okay. It's also incompatible with eating for most people, unless you live in the United States. And I don't know how it is in Australia, but yes, in the United States, you will see certainly people out walking and eating. But for most people, that's not the case. Okay. So that's the story on cortisol. It's really important. And it does speak to our current environment of go, 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 yeah. stay up late with bright lights on our faces, you know, that kind of thing. We have to begin to pay attention to this stuff. Yeah. And look, one thing that you said, which I think is a, such a good reminder for myself and our listeners, is not to sort of overwhelm patients and go back to the basics. You know, those tips that you spoke about, you know, food timings that work with the cortisol circadian rhythm, you know, eat more in the morning and less at night and reduce your light exposure at night, get up with the sun, you know, reduce your stress load, ensure there's rest and recovery happening that involves relaxing activities and walking especially walking in a green environment, those things can really work synergistically to reduce our cortisol levels and then have it more the Dr. Jekyll, the helpful form of cortisol in our bodies. I really like those reminders. So important. Um, yeah, and one other thing I'll say here, Emma, that's kind of cool. One of the other things you can do to help with cortisol and stress in general is temperature regulation okay. and temperature exposure. So very short exposure to cold uh, and or hot can help with cortisol. For example, we know that cold exposure first thing in the morning 
can increase norepinephrine, epinephrine, and cortisol. Uh, And warmth at night can begin to lower cortisol. Uh, One of the interesting things about temperature exposure at night, too, is that you got to kind of think about the way that heat has an acute effect on you and cold has an acute effect on you, but then heat and cold also have an adaptive response on you. Mm. So obviously, if you heat yourself up at night with a hot shower or hot bath or hot sauna, what happens is all the blood vessels dilate. They start to dissipate heat and to cool the body down. Mm. Well, we all know that that cooling sensation of cooling the core down is a natural signal for bedtime. True. And it, regular sauna bathers have been shown to reduce cortisol uh, levels. And so mm. cold might be something we can use to raise cortisol when we want it high. Yeah. And heat might be something we can use to lower cortisol levels. And these temperature effects also can have very beneficial effects in helping us do better with this rest and recovery activity. Mm. The final thing I'll say here is that when it comes to alternating hot and cold, so-called contrast hydrotherapy, where you go from hot to cold, back to hot, back to cold, over and over again, this is a great way to exercise the hypothalamus and to get it to be a little bit more sensitive. Because remember, the hypothalamus One of the things it also does is regulate temperature. Now, of course, this would need to be studied, but I have a theory and a hypothesis that one of the reasons contrast hydrotherapy Mm -hmm. has been shown to be so effective in things like immune function and reduction of Alzheimer's risk and cardiovascular benefits, reducing risk of cardiovascular disease, Mm -hmm. is that it really is helping manage cortisol and making the hypothalamus pituitary axes, adrenal thyroid gonadal, more functional. Okay. So those are all things I think we as clinicians can be looking for to help this system. Yeah, yeah. Some really great pointers there. And it is about working upstream and downstream. Uh, coming from both angles is always yep. going to be a good thing. I wanted to pick your brains on estrogen. Now, a decline in estrogen can cause changes in fat distribution and an increased storage of abdominal fat. And you have written estrogen mm-hmm. is insulin sensitizing, making it less likely that excess calories are stored as belly fat and more likely a calorie mm-hmm. deficit results in fat loss rather other than muscle loss. So can you share with us how estrogen levels affect metabolism and a woman's weight? Yes. And and one of the things that we should do is that whenever we talk about estrogen, mm. you, we really need to talk about her twin sister, progesterone, because <laughs> they really do work uh, together. I say twin sister because I do think the best way to learn this is to think about estrogen and progesterone as non-identical twin sisters. They're twin sisters because they are absolutely dependent on each other. They're non-identical twin sisters because they don't do exactly the the same thing. Now, estrogen is the sister who's the go-getter. She's a type A athlete, uh, wants to go, 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 is very rambunctious, very adventurous. She is very strong. Um, And progesterone's more sort of a nerdy, sort of relaxing, more painter, more writer, more... Uh, like motherly, wants to stay home, more introverted of the two sisters. Now, you can imagine if estrogen gets out of control, either estrogen is not around and nothing gets done, but (laughs) if estrogen is too much, she gets in trouble. Mm. So progesterone is always trying to regulate and protect her sister estrogen. Now, estrogen dominates most of the time. Progesterone mainly plays a regulating role here. And estrogen is insulin sensitizing to the body. which essentially means that when you are overeating, estrogen makes it more likely that those calories will be stored as muscle. 
certainly you'll store some as fat, but it will make it more likely that the woman stores fat as muscle. Mm -hmm. Uh, If the woman is dieting and stressing herself out with very low carbohydrate diets and estrogen is around, Mm -hmm. she'll be more likely to lose fat and less likely to lose uh, muscle. So estrogen is a really, really good one to have around. Also, estrogen helps amplify dopamine and serotonin levels in the brain, Mm -hmm. which together, you know, people think of serotonin as relaxing, but it is, but it's mainly a self-esteem oriented sort of feeling. It makes you feel good about the world. And dopamine certainly is a neurotransmitter that allows us to fall in love with the process of achievement. So it's very Mm. driven and goal-oriented and likes that. So that's what estrogen feels like. Now, when estrogen begins to dominate, Mm -hmm. she begins to have negative effects on thyroid function. She begins to have negative impact in certain areas of the body. Tissues begin to overgrow. Leomyomas or fibroids, uh, endometriosis, these kinds of things begin to dominate. However, one of the things that she's really good at is she's really good at keeping fat off of the midsection. That hourglass shape is mainly driven by estrogen, and it has to do with estrogen's dual impact on sensitizing the body to insulin and reducing cortisol and keeping control of cortisol. And so estrogen is really good at that. Now, progesterone, her twin sister, Mm -hmm. helps estrogen with cortisol, but antagonizes estrogen's impact on insulin. So progesterone is insulin desensitizing. Or progesterone causes more insulin resistance. And for those of you who are confused about that, think about it like this, that post-ovulation, that's when progesterone starts to make herself known. Uh, Post-ovulation, there might be a baby coming along. So it makes sense to have increased triglycerides, blood fats, and Mm. increased glucose around in case that egg gets fertilized and you have a baby that needs to be sort of taken care of because the progesterone is very smart. She's like, we might have a kid. Let's make the body a little bit more insulin resistant so we have some extra blood fats and extra glucose around. And so this is what estrogen and progesterone are doing. This is how they're playing. And another way to visualize this is think of Joan of Arc. Think of Joan of Arc out there on the battlefield. Uh, Estrogen is the suit of armor. Progesterone Uh is the shield. And testosterone is the sword. Obviously, you don't want to lose your armor that is going to be the biggest influence, but you could lose your shield and still be protected somewhat. Mm. So progesterone plays a slightly different role. Now, when you understand this, now you understand that perimenopause, when progesterone goes away, estrogen gets incredibly volatile. Sometimes it's high, sometimes it's low. You can think about that as a sister losing her sister. She's distraught. Sometimes she's okay and sometimes she's freaking out. Mm-hmm. And that's why estrogen levels, you know, are so volatile. And this is where you start to see some of the, the accumulation of weight around the middle. So what do we do about that? Well, if we don't have progesterone, progesterone is very relaxing in the brain. Yeah. It has an impact on GABA and that is very relaxing to the brain. So now women specifically mm-hmm. uh, need to begin to be a little bit more sensitive to their own needs for rest and recovery because mm. progesterone isn't going to supply that. They need to be very aware that stress is going to have a negative impact. And then, of course, at menopause, when estrogen falls away as well, and now the armor is lost, now they really have to be extra diligent about not just stress reduction, but also perhaps calorie intake. 
the same diet and exercise that worked for a younger woman is probably not going to work for her in her, <laughs> old, in her older years because estrogen and progesterone are now reduced. Mm. And she's going to have to take a more stress-reducing effect and a more calorie, start looking at calories and perhaps start looking at carbohydrate intake mm. as a greater consideration than when she was young. When she's young, maybe she could just count calories and cut calories back a little bit. Yeah. Maybe as she loses estrogen, she needs to be a little bit more uh, weary about carbohydrate intake. Look, I really love that analogy, Jade, of the, of the non-identical twin sisters with progesterone being the relaxing, creative, nurturing uh, one and estrogen being the type A, adventurous, goal-orientated, dominating one. You know, when I think about this information through my clinical lens, I'm thinking of the women that come in to see me that are perimenopausal saying, 10 years ago, I used to just do X, Y, Z and I would drop those three kilos really easily. Now I can't do it at all. But if we can reframe that and explain to women that they are no longer enjoying the benefits of as much progesterone and therefore they need to make lifestyle choices and really help preserve that function of rest and recovery in order for them to drop that little bit of weight. I think that that's critical from that clinical pearl perspective and, and really just watching the carbohydrate intake. I do think we need to earn our carbs after a certain age. I think you are very right on that level. Yeah, I think it's very, very well said. And of course, we have to remember as clinicians, one of the things that makes us clinicians and not researchers is that we have to deal with individuals. Mm. Remember, research is a tool for averages, not individuals. Yeah. We deal with individuals. And so each woman or each person we have to deal with, we have to take into account their unique physiology, psychology, preferences, and practical circumstances. Mm. And when it comes to estrogen and progesterone, it's very uh, good to know what their unique physiology is because a young female has a very different physiology than a more mature female. And medicine and research certainly has not looked at that much in the lens of a weight loss. But then, of course, mm. we have to say, okay, now we have to take into account psychology, uh, how, yeah. how uh, some, people, some people are very resilient to stress psychologically, some are not. And we have to think about preferences. Some are vegetarians and vegans. And some aren't, right? Yeah. And some are, you know, omnivores. And, some, and nowadays, some are carnivores and, and paleo dieters. And so all of this we have to take into account. But obviously, if we miss the estrogen progesterone story, mm. we're not even taking it into account, and we're doing one-size-fits-all diets, we are potentially doing harm. And this comes into, um, you know, consideration where things like fasting or keto diets and mm. things like that might be seen one way in a younger woman who has estrogen and progesterone um, or one way in the particular in a particular menstrual cycle, you know, like the first two weeks of the menstrual cycle when estrogen is dominating, maybe that's a time for more extreme dieting and exercise. Mm. But that's very different in someone in the second half of the menstrual cycle or very different than someone who's perimenopausal, menopausal, or postmenopausal. And these are all things yeah. I think that we have ignored because what we do is we look at it in the clinical lens. Like, for example, yeah. when, when we think of menopause clinically oftentimes, we think of, oh, this means that this woman is one year without menses and or has an FSH of 30 or above, right? Yeah. However, we also need to be thinking menopause. Oh, menopause usually means she's got very little estrogen and progesterone floating around, yeah, right? And perimenopause is 
low progesterone with volatile estrogen. That's a little different than menopause, mm, right? Mm. Volatile estrogen with low progesterone is a little different than low progesterone and low estrogen. So these distinctions matter, um, and I think they matter a lot. Yeah, I would 100% agree because you know, people do think one size fits all. And as you know, naturopaths and integrative clinicians, we know that this individualized medicine approach is so important so that their patients do actually get the results that they're looking for. Yeah, 100%. Amazing. Jade, thank you so much for joining us today. There's a few key points I've taken away. There's actually many and I'm trying to get my brain unscrambled. Uh, But the first one is that metabolism is complex and nuanced, making case-taking for the individual extremely important. I love this new framework for metabolism, you know, thinking of it as a sensing and responding apparatus that responds to the internal and external cues to regain balance and homeostasis. And the importance of educating our patients on the role that hormones play in their metabolism so they get a deeper understanding. And, you know, really hormone receptor responsiveness is where we need to be focusing uh, our, our efforts, you know, the things we spoke about, you know, food timings, light exposure, the rest and recovery, the walking, the temperature regulation, all of those things can really help across all those fronts. I think it's um, absolutely critical to be looking at um, all of that stuff, for sure. Yeah, amazing. Thank you, everyone, today for listening. Don't forget, you can find all the show notes, transcripts, and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website, fxmedicine.com.au. I'm Emma Sutherland, and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The Biocuticals Clinical Range has been developed exclusively for clinicians. This product range offers complex formulas, higher doses, and specific ingredients for specialised cases. Biocuticals Clinical infuses quality, credibility, innovation and professionalism into an exclusive product range that meets the needs and demands of private clinicians. Visit biocuticals.com.au to learn more.